Morning, Glory, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the last radio hour of the week, and that means the Hillsdale Dialogue. Since four years ago, I've devoted the last hour of every radio week to a conversation either with Hillsdale College President Dr. Larry Arn or one of his esteemed colleagues about issues of lasting importance. This week, Dr. Paul A. Ray is my guest. Professor Ray holds the Charles O. Lee and Louise K. Lee Chair in Western Heritage at Hillsdale College, where he's a professor of history. He is sadly a Yaley twice. He's the author of many, many wonderful books, most recently, The Spartan Regime. He's been here many times before. His website is Paul A. Ray, R-A-H-E, Paul A R A H E dot com. Professor Ray, welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Great to have you on. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, professor, this week is, is not, we're not going back 2,600 years to the Spartan regime, much as I might like to. And I, I note you're doing an online course about that. How long has that course been up over at Hillsdale.edu? Uh, it's been up about a year. Victor Hansen did Athens and I did Sparta. So there's eight lectures introduced by Dr. Arn. Did you fight at the end and did you win just you know, for 27 minutes or something like that? Uh, um, well, the Spartans beat the Athenians. That's so what I, I was saying. I did win. The 27-year war, it might have been a 20. So, But I, there are more important and pressing matters, and I want to use your expertise as a classicist, a historian, and an acute observer of things modern to ask you a couple of questions, uh, first of all, about what you think about the first 43 days of the Donald Trump administration, then we'll work into the speech he gave and the serial controversies which have been ginned up around him. First of all, the way I like to ask questions, what's your general take on the man and the launch of the administration? Well, um, I have a theory that I call the 24-year itch theory, Uh, and it is that Roughly every 24 years, we have a kind of revolution in American politics. Uh, There's the American Revolution in 1776. There's the Revolution of 1800 when Jefferson comes in. Uh, There's the Revolution of 1828, which is foreshadowed in 1824, uh, when Andrew Jackson gets a majority of the popular vote. Uh, And you can follow that all the way up to the present day. That is to say... If you look at the most recent election and you go back 24 years, uh, you you get uh, the insurgency that produced a third-party candidate uh, and and put Bill Clinton into power. And if you go 24 years before that, you get George Wallace. Uh, As a cub reporter in 1968, I covered the Wallace campaign in Oklahoma, uh, and I remember it very well. Um, So what I think is you've got an unusual insurgency. But it's, there's a kind of precedent in American life for this. Uh, and, you know, Trump knows about it. Uh, he's got a picture of Andrew Jackson uh, in, in his office. That's the first Republican to, to glom on to Andrew Jackson in that way. Um, and why was he elected? Uh, look, I was not a Trump supporter. Um, uh, there were other people um, uh, and that, that I thought were better for the job. But he was elected because the base of the Republican Party does not trust Republican politicians and have excellent reasons not to. Consider this. Over the last six, seven years, the Republicans have said, we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. Do they have a plan? Uh, well, no. Uh, at least not one that were. Well, they have concepts. They have concepts. So, yeah, right. But not a plan. You'd think after six years you'd have a plan if you were serious. Yeah. So you think that that is what generated this distrust? Yes. That and other things. 
Okay. Uh, they, they took over Congress. They had the power of the purse. They were scared to death to use it. They, they were, and when the, when the Congress closed down, they ran away. And so yeah. the, the pressure is on them is high. So given all that, how has Donald Trump managed the rollout? Well, look, on the whole, the choice of, of people to run uh, executive agencies and, and to, to run the, the, the very sort of ministries of the American government has been pretty good. Um, sober, sensible, and bold. Uh, the tweeting uh, is crazy. But, you know, it's the tweeting that got him elected. So I'm not sure it's hurt him all that much. I don't uh, think it's hurt him in the least, actually. Yeah, it's kind I, of an I, interesting thing. I don't like it. Um, uh, it's unpresidential, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I learned a lot in this last year that what I, what I don't like may not be the most important thing. <laughs> Didn't uh, we all learn that, uh, yeah, uh, and, Professor Ray? Didn't we all learn yeah. to, not to overvalue our own perspective? Right. And also... Um, not to uh, overvalue um, the the um, the sort of rupture character of this. Not not to take that as a as a great horror. Uh, uh, it's I held off uh, supporting Trump until near the end, and then Hillary pushed me over the end when she started talking about deplorables and irredeemables. Right. Uh, and for me, the most important thing was the First Amendment, which the Democrats want to repeal. Forty-four Democratic senators introduced a constitutional amendment that would gut the First Amendment. Uh, Hillary Clinton supported it. It went into the program of the Democratic Party. Uh, and it, it might not have been accomplished by amendment, but it would have been accomplished by their court appointments. Uh, and so I think, you know, if, if I were to write a piece about our situation right now, it would be stay of sentence. Uh, interesting. Stay of sentence. So we have to wait and see. Gorsuch, you must approve of, though. It's the most significant thing he has actually done, yeah. and that will have lasting consequences. And I, am, I, I esteem the judge highly. Yeah, and I think his, um, his rollback of all sorts of um, executive orders, I think that's very important as well. Uh, the area where he's, you know, where they've got him and they can pummel him, is in foreign policy, particularly with regard to Russia, uh, where I think uh, his situation, his his understanding of things is unreal. Now, the appointments he's made, people like Mattis, whom I know, um, I spent a weekend with him in October at the, at the Hoover Institution. Uh, what do you make of him? Let's uh, pause right there. He's a very fine man. And he has a very fine the, the the gathering at Hoover is something organized by Victor Hansen, and it it brings together military historians, and the focus is on strategy. So to watch Mattis uh, in action in that kind of setting, speaking with strategists, what you what you could see was that his mind was superior in that particular sphere to anybody in the room. Um, wow. He's a, he's a very, very smart and very thoughtful man. I just played an interview I conducted yesterday with President George W. Bush in which there was an aside in which he pronounced himself to be very happy with Secretary Mattis, being yeah. Secretary Mattis. Uh, I think it's a terrific appointment, and I'm very glad to see H.R. McMaster uh, in, in the White House. I also referenced the interview just concluded with George H. W., uh, George W. Bush, in which he said the very same thing, the architect of the surge, he called him. Yes. Yes, he's not the sole architect of the surge, but he's he's one of the pioneers of that, and he was a guy who put it into effect on the ground, which is uh, rough work. 
um, very smart. And his book on Vietnam and the generals is excellent. So uh, it, the president's in, put himself in a situation where he's, he's apt to get very good advice. And shaking up the State Department, uh, that's also a very good thing. But what we're seeing is a war of what you might call the deep state, uh, in conjunction with uh, the the um, uh, establishment press uh, and the Democratic Party against the president. I call it the Manhattan Beltway media elite and the yeah. Democratic Party. And that elite, um, in fact, I want to read for you after the break my take on what's going on. But let, let's quickly get to the Jeff Sessions thing. This is a wholly contrived controversy as to perjury. His recusal is appropriate given the lawyer injunction to avoid even the appearance of impropriety, and this is the potential of appearance of impropriety, but he's he's an ethical man and he's living up to the highest standards of my profession. But there is no hint of perjury in what he said. It's simply a misapplication of a lethal term to a good man. Yes, right. And look, the, 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 the question he was asked is whether he had discussions with the Russians about a certain subject. Uh, he answered no. He didn't say, I had no discussion with the Russians. And as a United States senator, uh, there's interchange commonly uh, between um, uh, people in the United States Senate and and ambassadors of all sorts of countries. And I guarantee you the uh, the ambassador from Russia to the United States is not running the FSB GRU uh, wet measures campaign through WikiLeaks against the United States, which happened and which I denounced and you denounced, Paul. Yes. But it's got nothing to do with Sessions. Now, look, there, there's there's an elaborate game going on. And the trouble is that it's so transparently ridiculous uh, that I can't see that it's going to help them any. Uh, When we come back from break, we're going to talk about that. That was, in fact, the point of a column I wrote in the Washington Post on Tuesday that I'm going to have the esteemed Dr. Paul Ray comment on. PaulARay.com. P-A-U-L-A-R-A-H-E.com for the best in military history and just a perspective unique. That's why we do the Hillsdale Dialogue to talk to big thinkers about big events, including those going on in this country. Stay tuned. Portions of the Hugh Hewitt Show are brought to you by Food for the Poor. Welcome back, American Hugh Hewitt. Thank you so much for listening to the Hugh Hewitt Show. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week when we go big with a big thinker from Hillsdale College, often Dr. Larry Arnett's president today, Professor Paul A. Ray, Dr. Ray, such an accomplished historian, sadly a Yaley, but we put that aside on this occasion because we've got to get his, his opinion of what's going on. Professor Ray, I mentioned as we were going to break, I, I wrote a piece following President Trump's Tuesday night speech some segments of which we're going to be playing for you in just a moment. And it concluded this way. This is my piece saying that Trump's critics seem to deeply desire to attribute to him would be what would be a terrible example of blame shifting by the commander in chief referring to the and they lost Ryan comment. It isn't an irrational opinion, but it also isn't one that rings true. And pressing the argument, pushing the worst possible interpretation of a statement far more easily understood the way I understand it. Understand, underscores again the yawning gap between Manhattan Beltway media elites and flyover country. The media should press every debate at every moment from every angle, I continue. Nothing less is expected from a free press. But those whose contempt for Trump is warping every instinct into one that sees only the worst of motives risk 
and indeed may have already willed into being a wall of refusal to hear any further critiques from them, turning every statement, every speech, every interview into an occasion of the harshest condemnation does not lead to rising negatives for the president. It instead cements the narrative that the elite media is out to delegitimize and destroy the Trump presidency. It's a trap the media may have already fallen into. The media needs to step back and applaud when the new president delivers, as he did Tuesday night, and blast away when he swings and misses, as he did when he labeled a sitting federal judge uh, a, quote, so-called judge. If everything done by the president is an assault on decency and the rule of law, then nothing is. What do you make of my critique of the media, Professor Ray? Well, I think it's right. And uh, let me push it a little one step further. This kind of attack on Trump is an attack on the people who voted for him. Um, They are deplorable and irredeemable. That was the theme of Hillary Clinton's speech, and she came back to it later. And it's actually the theme of the press. Now, when you tell people they're deplorable and irredeemable, they get angry. So, in fact, what I think the press is doing is solidifying the base that voted for Trump, uh, including people like me who voted for Trump um, uh, reluctantly. Reluctantly. Yep. Uh, and what they're doing, at least in my case, is confirming the suspicion that drove me into Trump's arms, uh, which is to say that uh, they're going to come after us. Uh, and, you know, the, the move against free speech, uh, which is echoed, by the way, in the academy. Uh, back uh, around Halloween, um, the, the, the woman who was uh, co-master of one of the Yale colleges, uh, who had the previous Halloween written a, an email to the people in the colleges about uh, a, appropriate Halloween costumes, the thing that had caused the great explosion in Yale, she had a piece in the Washington Post. Uh, on the 28th of October this, of this last year, in which she talked about why she resigned from her teaching position at Yale. Uh, and what she said is, I no longer feel safe talking about some of the fundamental issues in the education of young people, in huh. particular, the issue of missing fathers and the impact of missing fathers. Uh, on uh, the um, the development of children and uh, their educability. Um, in other words, we're talking about academic freedom right at the core, where a professor in class is talking about the subject of her expertise. Uh, and she said she no longer felt felt safe talking about a matter that some people might find defensive. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that is rather fundamental to the education of young people. And, you know, it's a major issue in America. 54% of the children born to women aged 18 to 34 are born out of wedlock now. Uh, And that means a very substantial proportion of that 54% don't have fathers around. Uh, So to examine that question, that's a a very serious question. Uh, What does it mean? Yeah, it, uh, me- it, yeah, it means that the Academy has closed its ears, eyes, and mind to anything resembling what its mission ought to be in many places. Not at Hillsdale College. Everything Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. This and all Hillsdale Dialogues at Q for hillsdale.com. Dr. Ray returns after this. Stay tuned. All the nations. 
nations of the world, friend or foe, will find that America is strong, America is proud, and America is free. In nine years, the United States will celebrate the 250th anniversary of our founding, 250 years since the day we declared our independence. It will be one of the great milestones in the history of the world. But what will America look like as we reach our 250th year? What kind of country will we leave for our children? I will not allow the mistakes of recent decades past to define the course of our future. For too long, we've watched our middle class shrink as we've exported our jobs and wealth to foreign countries. We've financed and built one global project after another, but ignored the fates of our children in the inner cities of Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit, and so many other places throughout our land. We've defended the borders of other nations while leaving our own borders wide open for anyone to cross and for drugs to pour in at a now unprecedented rate. And we've spent trillions and trillions of dollars overseas while our infrastructure at home has so badly crumbled. Then in 2016, the earth shifted beneath our feet. The rebellion started as a quiet protest spoken by families of all colors and creeds, families who just wanted a fair shot for their children and a fair hearing for their concerns. But then the quiet voices became a loud chorus as thousands of citizens now spoke out together from cities small and large all across our country. Finally, the chorus became an earthquake, and the people turned out by the tens of millions, and they were all united by one very simple but crucial demand that America must put its own citizens first, because only then can we truly make America great again. Uh, join now in the Hillsdale Dialogue. It's Hugh Hewitt by Professor Paul Ray of Hillsdale. Hillsdale.edu for everything Hillsdale. Hugh for Hillsdale.com for all of our dialogues. Professor Ray, what did you make of that, which I think is probably, other than the salute to uh, the widow of Ryan Owens, the central moment of the speech? Uh, well, look, it, it's a restatement of the theme of his campaign, right down to the phrase at the end, make America great again. But he, put his, he puts his finger on it. Uh, that um, a political community is formed first and foremost for the protection of the members of the political community, and everything else comes second. Uh, and if you have open borders, you cannot protect uh, the members of your own political community. Uh, and look, he is... Um, I'm in favor of a generous policy of immigration. You and me both. Uh, but open borders are another thing. Correct. Uh, and, you know, I lived out in California three years ago in Silicon Valley. Next to me, next to the apartment that I occupied, uh, was an apartment with 12 Chinese in it. It was strictly illegal. This was an apartment limited to about five people uh, by the law. Uh, these were people who were working for Google on temporary HB1B uh, visas. 
uh, and they were taking American jobs. Uh, I had dinner one evening with the parent of a, of a Hillsdale student uh, who built condominiums and, and apartments in the Silicon Valley area, and he told me that 80% of his employees were illegal aliens. Uh, it, 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 one of the striking features of being in Silicon Valley is I almost never saw an African-American. Uh, they've been pushed out. Uh, East Palo Alto used to be an African-American community. Now it's a largely illegal alien community. Uh, and the, the wages of American workers, especially unskilled workers, but also carpenters and, and that sort of thing, have been undercut. Uh, over the last uh, 30 or 40 years by a wave of illegal immigrants. Uh, and those people have been upset for a long time, and neither political party has appealed to them. They've been abandoned by the Democratic Party, uh, and the Republican Party is so closely tied to the Chamber of Commerce and the concerns of the Chamber of Commerce, which is to say the primary one being cheap labor, uh, that they didn't respond to it. So, yeah, our- Professor, I want to I want to pause here for ten years. I've been arguing that the wall—I call it a fence, a double, long, strong, high fence—is the visible expression of an invisible commitment to sovereignty that was the heart of the deal, and that it didn't get built was profoundly undermining of confidence in the Republicans, who are all, by the way, I think, 90% of whom are in a generous mood towards regularization. Those who are here who are not lawbreakers or violent may stay, but will come above ground, pay taxes, that sort of thing, but not become voting citizens, but build that wall— and the Republican regular establishment was afraid of that. Yes. Yes. Look, I, I, they were afraid of enforcing the law. The laws are on the books. They've been on the books for a long time. And the laws are consistent with sovereignty. Uh, and the, um, the Republicans are so much under the control of the Chamber of Commerce that they were unwilling to enforce laws that they themselves had voted for. Let me play for you another portion of the Trump speech, because it goes back to what I think you put your finger on it, the first duty of the political community that is formed by consent. Here's Donald Trump from Tuesday night, cut number eight. Our obligation is to serve, protect, and defend the citizens of the United States. We are also taking strong measures to protect our nation from radical Islamic terrorism. According to data provided by the Department of Justice, the vast majority of individuals convicted of terrorism and terrorism-related offenses since 9-11 came here from outside of our country. We have seen the attacks at home, from Boston to San Bernardino to the Pentagon and, yes, even the World Trade Center. We have seen the attacks in France, in Belgium, in Germany, and all over the world. It is not compassionate, but reckless to allow uncontrolled entry from places where proper vetting cannot occur. Those given the high honor of admission to the United States should support this country and love its people and its values. We cannot allow a beachhead of terrorism to form inside America. We cannot allow our nation to become a sanctuary for extremists. This goes back to your first uh, comment, Paul Ray. The first duty of the political community is to protect the political community that voluntarily consents to its formation. Yes. And and look, he's, he's absolutely right on all of this. Uh, 
the the uh, the attack that took place a few years back on uh, an American military base was uh, not uh, sort of a workplace attack. Uh, the man was yelling "Allahu Akbar." Um, there is uh, an Islamic problem. Uh, I don't mean to suggest Islamist. I use, always use the word Islamist to distinguish from our Muslim uh, friends, fellow citizens, and indeed those in uniform fighting for the flag. Yeah, I, I, you know, and here's here's the problem. Uh, Islam is the flip side of Judaism. Both of them are religions of holy law. But Judaism is a religion of exile. I mean, so much so that that there are many Jews in Israel who are uncomfortable being there, uncomfortable being in a Jewish state. Uh, uh, and it's tied up with the history of, Juda- uh, of Judaism, which was a history largely uh, of, of being in exile. Uh, Islam is really the opposite. It's a religion of holy law that uh, it conquers uh, and establishes holy law in the place that it conquers. So it is hard for Muslims to be in a country uh, that is not Islamic. Uh, and that's why the Islamists, I'm using your word, and I think it's a proper word, uh, have such leverage within the larger world of Islam. Uh, yes. I was once married to a Muslim, uh, a Turk, uh, and... Uh, <laughs> The young woman would not have hurt anybody, uh, and and many of the Muslims that I knew when I lived in Turkey, uh, it's just inconceivable that they would participate in anything uh, like terrorism. But there is a problem. Uh, it is that leverage. It is that Wahhabist leverage. And that's, that's what the president is speaking to. And anyone who attempts to inflate or conflate his critique or our critique or Lawrence Wright's critique in the Looming Tower is disingenuous. Yes. And there's been an awful lot of sort of transparent lying that has gone on um, since the uh, second Bush administration about this, uh, more emphatically under Obama, but it started under Bush. Let me play for you, Professor Ray, that one more Donald Trump clip. Cut number seven, please. Okay. Dying industries will come roaring back to life. Heroic veterans will get the care they so desperately need. Our military will be given the resources its brave warriors so richly deserve. Crumbling infrastructure will be replaced with new roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, and railways gleaming across our very, very beautiful land. Our terrible drug epidemic will slow down and ultimately stop. And our neglected inner cities will see a rebirth of hope, safety, and opportunity. Above all else, we will keep our promises to the American people. Uh, I think that is so crucial, Paul Ray. What do you think? Yes, all of that. I mean, uh, the crumbling infrastructure is certainly true. The rise of crime in places like Baltimore and Chicago is really quite shocking. And it reminds me of the 60s. Uh, we have seen a kind of return of lawlessness. Uh, so far, it is it is limited uh, mainly to inner city areas in particular places, and it has to do with the withdrawal of the police. And that withdrawal of the police was uh, uh, caused by the way the Obama administration handled all sorts of, of 
individual cases. More on that after the break. My guest is Dr. Paul Ray from Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, for all your needs and online courses, including his wonderful one on Sparta. A reminder at this point to go to the Food for the Poor banner at com and dig deep. It is Lent, and we're just talking about Judaism and Islam in Lent. Christians reflect upon their obligations to the world and especially to the poor and how they've fallen short. Do something about it. The Food for the Poor banner allows you, whether you give a widow's mite or $500 million or anything in between, uh, whatever is sacrificial, do it. Because Food for the Poor delivers more than 95% of that contribution to the suffering in Haiti and Guatemala throughout the Southern Hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere. And, and I will tell you that in Haiti especially, starvation is real, drought is real, disease, and it's all real. And the Food for the Poor organization, so wonderful. Please dig and generously. Come right back here for the conclusion of my Hillsdale Dialogue with Professor Paul Ray of Hillsdale College. Hillsdale.edu, Hillsdale.edu, and all of my dialogues going back to 2013 with Professor Arn and others at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Back, America. It's been a fantastic and amazing week in America. I'm wrapping it up by talking on this Hillsdale Dialogue Hour, all of them collected for many years at Hugh4Hillsdale.com with Professor Paul Ray, great professor at Hillsdale College. His most recent book, The Sparta Regime, The Spartan Regime, is linked at the Hillsdale.com, uh, Hillsdale.edu website. It's also at his website, PaulARay.com. That's spelled Paul, the letter A R A H E. I have to do that slowly, Professor, for the Steelers fans. Can I play for you one last uh, excerpt from the Trump speech to get your reaction? Because Lincoln was invoked, and you are a student of Lincoln by President Trump, in cut number 13. I believe strongly in free trade, but it also has to be fair trade. It's been a long time since we had fair trade. The first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, warned that the abandonment of the protective policy by the American government will produce want and ruin among our people. Lincoln was right, and it's time we heeded his advice and his words. I am not going to let America and its great companies and workers be taken advantage of us any longer. They have taken advantage of our country no longer. Uh, Professor Ray, uh, this is when I, I wrote in the post that I saw a shadow of concern flash across the face of Speaker Ryan. And, uh, you know, because we are free traders, we are Reaganots. I'm glad he got out of TPP because I don't like multi-party deals. I do like one-on-one deals. Nevertheless, uh, I like the NAFTA agreement. And uh, that that concern is there. But he invoked Lincoln. He could have invoked Lincoln, by the way, on internal improvements as well, a very famous speech he gave during his one term in Congress. What did you make of invoking Lincoln on behalf of tariffs? Well, you know, it, it was the policy of the Republican Party in the 19th century. Uh, as it was, uh, for example, Alexander Hamilton uh, before that, uh, to use um, tariffs to promote American industry. Uh, That policy changed over time as American industry became strong. Uh, And we came to have an interest in um, free trade because we didn't need protectionism. Um, I'm a little bit... um, Uh, Let me put it this way. Free movement of labor is a dangerous thing 
because it threatens sovereignty. Yes. And it means the very character of your country can be changed by importing large numbers of people from abroad. Uh, I think that's already happened in California, to be frank. Um, uh, the uh, free trade, however, uh, is another matter because it promotes competition. Uh, it keeps domestic industry on its toes. They have to be good. Um, and uh, it lowers prices and helps everybody in the country. It, so, it, it is remarkable how powerful it is, but the distinction you just made is the critical distinction. It's actually the one that led to Brexit. They were all for a common market. They were not for, I was talking with a, a Lord of the uh, House of Lords at, at the National Association of uh, the Religious Broadcasters this weekend, a wonderful gentleman saying that they're, they've got like an imbalance of almost, uh, what, I think a quarter million EU immigrants into Great Britain who all want to be able to stay, but Great Britain doesn't have that many people who want to leave Great Britain and go live in Europe. Right. Right. Well, you can understand that. Uh, there's a million Frenchmen living in London. Okay. It had to be. It had to be much more than. I just can't remember the number. But I was stunned at the imbalance of the number of people who have migrated under the EU treaty into Great Britain, and the, how very few British want to go live in Europe. So that's what powered Brexit. It wasn't the goods and the the no tariffs. It was the people. Now, if we want to turn around and ask, uh, what is it that um, caused? puts American business at a disadvantage abroad, I think it's the regulatory state. Yes. Uh, and at least here in Michigan, it was the stranglehold that the UAW had on the, uh, on the auto, automobile makers that drove up the costs of producing automobiles in the United States and put us at a, at a terrible disadvantage. And the UAW, which was a kind of parasite on, on the automobile industry, finally destroyed the automobile industry, as parasites often do. I will tell you, it will be, it will be a wonderful thing if Michigan stays red. And if it does, it will be because of the Ann Arbor Renaissance, which was done by the lowering of regulatory barriers and the promotion of free markets and free minds that is led by the Lantern of the North at Hillsdale College. Professor Ray, always a pleasure, my friend. Good to see you. Are you working on getting me an invitation to Hillsdale that isn't in January? Uh, I would love to have you come visit this coming January. No, no, I always come in January. I want to come any other time of the year than January. It's ah, a, Dr. Yeah. Arn gives me a January visa. It's the only time I'm allowed. You know, the time to come is September or October. Yes. It's really beautiful. Of here. course. Of course it is. That's why your malicious president does me wrong every <laughs> single year. Doctor, <laughs> thank I you so be. much for filling in for me. The Spartan Regime by Dr. Paul Ray. I want to thank General Lissimo and Adam, especially General Lissimo went with me yesterday today to conduct the interview with Professor uh, with President Bush, and he got into a fight with him about Little League. He, he said, call the balls and strikes fair, and what did you say? I said, I usually call strikes more than balls, and he says, good man, it makes the game go quicker. Well, I think, I think, he, did he say good man? I didn't hear that part. No, he said was, good man, I, and I'm sure you didn't hear yeah, that. Yeah, I didn't hear that part. Thank you for making that happen. Thanks, all of you, for listening. Thank you, Adam and Jake and Ben. Go watch, go listen to the interview with George W. Bush. Get the book, Portraits of Courage, and I'll see you on Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.